So we've read and heard many stories about migrants, both documented and undocumented, as well as refugees in Malaysia, their struggles and constant fear to survive after escaping from their home country, seeking for a better future. So when COVID-19 struck in February 2020, the government ordered a movement control order and some would say a lockdown to contain the pandemic. So documented and undocumented migrants, refugees are fearful during the lockdown, fear of coming out to get checked and screened for virus, but later detained by the immigration department, by the authorities. Their fear is real. And true enough, during the enhanced MCO, hundreds of migrants were rounded up at various markets and sent to detention centres. Some of them tried to flee from the authorities and escape from being detained, sent back to the countries. So in April, more than 30 Rohingya refugees died in a boat en route to Malaysia from Myanmar. They were stranded in the sea for four months. More than 300 of them were rescued from the sea. They were turned away by Malaysian authorities. So this week on BMI, Bichara Minguini, on the next episode of the special series on Malaysian women in journalism, and I'm your host, Norman Go. Our next guest will share on his program about migrants and refugees in Malaysia. And the elephant in the room is, do we have slavery in Malaysia? Is this neo-slavery? She has been an invest- investigative journalist for about two decades and an independent filmmaker of at least a dozen of at least a dozen films. She has covered stories from armed smugglers, militants in the southern Thailand and Indonesia, refugees in Myanmar, baby traffickers, and even the Tamil Tiger separatist rebel group in Sri Lanka. Here in Malaysia, she has been covering many stories about migrants and refugees living in the country. Speaking to Bichara Ini, we have Mahi Ramakrishnan, an independent filmmaker and investigative journalist. Welcome, Mahi. Hello. Hello. So how's it been? I mean, one of the um, things that you were uh, busy on uh, currently is the Refugee Fest. Uh, there were a lot of obstacles going on. So we will come to that, you know, that sort of stories. But tell us um, from your side, uh, how has it been as an um, as a journalist for the past two decades? Uh, how has it been? As in, I just I think that you know I um, went into journalism and started exploring at the most opportune moment because you know unlike now where journalism you know it's not really more traditional. Um, everything is done online, and I feel that the oomph isn't quite there. <laughs> but you know, at that point in time, um, there was a, there was a need. For, for journalists and journalists who actually worked on the ground. It was more traditional. The newspapers were all thriving. The magazines were thriving. And I started off with the Sun newspaper, actually. And then I worked a little bit under uh, Stephen Gunn's special issues, and he was a mentor of sorts. And then uh, after that, I uh, did a bit of work with AP and a little bit of work with Malaysia Kini, AFP. And after that, I went to Time magazine. And I must say, uh, from there, there was no um, looking back because uh, my bosses in Time magazine were incredible. They allowed me the space uh, to actually explore and to do my own story. So when I was working for Time magazine, I started exploring stories on Islamic militancy, Southeast Asia. Now, the good thing is that instead of expecting me to kind of like uh, check in and check out nine o'clock to five o'clock or whatever time, even though my bosses are all in Hong Kong, they actually gave me the freedom to, to go, make contacts, talk to people, establish relationships, which are incredibly important um, things that one, have, one has to do 
if you want to be a good investigative journalist because you need to know everyone you know you need to know uh, a cabinet minister but you also need to know as a smuggler because you do so many stories right so i must say that time magazine was the one that that was the stepping stone because they allowed me the freedom and the the you know the kind of circumstances that allowed me to actually become an investigative journalist so it was just me uh trying to figure out what to do how to do things and then you know it was a huge learning curve you know right? what what made you that uh you know when you were working with steven i've you know, Stephen was also doing some of the stories. I remember he, when he went to Timor and he was <laughs> to a point that he was, uh, he was detained in, in, in Timor when, when he covered stories like that. So what were the turning point when you want to do this uh, genre of stories? You know, not many people will have the courage to, to delve deeper into investigative journalism. You know, it, it comes in many ways, but your stories are not easy. They, they were very, very challenging. So what were the turning point at the time uh, when, when you first started uh, that made that it? You say, because you, you got to tell yourself that this is the one, that, that the one thing that I really want to pursue. You know, uh, starting off in a newsroom is important because it kind of equips you with the skills that's necessary. It allows you to meet so many different people because, you know, you're sent out on assignments almost on a daily basis. So you need to establish that relationship and that contact. After that, you get bored. <laughs> you know, even now, I started to get pretty bored with politics because A and B, B speaks to C, C speaks to A. So it's like, and then we get on because at the end of the day, it's just... Again, uh, you know, the big topic today, we talk about Malaysian women, journalism, politics, it's just men <laughs> just rushing to, you know, they're just, they're just looking for power. You know, th things like that. One, one of the reasons why I wanted to start it, uh, I started this uh, series is that I see there's so much contribution from uh, women journalists, especially in this field. You know, your stories were very compelling. You know, people were hitting you. Why do you write stories about refugees and migrants? There are more stories about Malaysians. Yeah, but actual fact is, migrants and refugees lived among us. So, back, you know, when when we when I listen to your 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 stories um, about yourself when you first started as a journalist, what do you remember most about when you first started writing stories about migrants and refugees? Let me tell you something else mm. before that. Yes. Uh, what I remember most about being a journalist, first day at work, <laughs> I was sent by uh, this person in uh, Sun uh, Newsroom to actually cover a conference which was happening in University of Malaya. I had no idea how to cover it. I didn't even know that you need to look for that one peg that you can use. So I was thinking, you know, so many people here and they, they keep on talking. What am I going to do now? So I went back to the office and I wrote something, right? And then I sent it to the editor and I waited and waited and waited. I was really scared. And then after a few hours, he actually calls me. <laughs> and this is what he did. He printed it out. He looked at me and he just like, like crushed it into a ball and looked at me and just like <laughs> threw it into a dustbin. <laughs> and I was standing there looking at myself like, do you really need this? You know? And then I asked myself, do you really want to do this? Is this, is this, is this for you? But then, you know, I kind of forget, right? So when you start telling stories, you understand that, I mean, initially you think that you're going to change the world. Two, three years into journalism, I realized, oh my God, I'm not going to change anything. But then you realize that 
you know, your stories are important because you're making information available out there. And people make decisions based on information that's available out there. So I, a few years into journalism, realized that my biggest role was to ensure that the information that I put out there as a journalist is accurate, has been verified and fact-checked. And I think that is, that's really important. So, you know, when you realize that your stories actually go a long way in, uh, can I say being the voice for the voiceless, you just find, I just find it too elitist. But, you know, when stories that people cannot tell themselves because they do not have the avenue to do so, but you are able to do that, whether it's uh, through a magazine, through a newspaper or through your films, then you think that, okay, I am doing something. So it's, you know, kind of reminded me of the, uh of things I I picked up when I when I first started at Guinea, I remember nobody could could make it to one of the kampongs. I think it was oh, I can't remember. I was in Kampong Pandan, and none of the journalists were free to go. And then I asked Stephen, "Can I go?" You know, one thing that struck me is that you know when you mentioned giving the voice to the voiceless, it's also giving the hu- the human to the invisible people in the streets. So I think. Yeah. You know, sometimes I do question some of my friends is that what we as journalists are doing right now, you know, what role do we play? So when we come to migrants and refugees over the past few months, I think this is not new. Seeing how Malaysians respond to uh, Rohingyas, I, I couldn't stomach in some of the comments were made about uh, refugees in, in the country to a point that they were so much dehumanized in the online space. Um, despite, you know, there's so many stories and unfortunately they've been used as a political tool. So what do you say about that? You know, what we have seen over the last few months, a uh, uh, few months, three months uh, from the start of the MCO is really unprecedented uh, because it is so well coordinated, it's so well planned and it's so shocking. But, you know, more than the narrative itself, what was even more shocking and sad for me was to see the kind of response from Malaysians on the ground. It, it kind of made me question again and again as to what kind of a society we have become. But more than that, you know, I wished and wished and wished that the newspapers, that journalists and reporters will actually go the extra mile to humanize the people that they were talking about. It really irks me until today. When I, when I read the word illegal documents, uh, illegal migrant workers, for example, as opposed to undocumented migrant workers, I don't understand why it's so difficult for papers to actually say, or news media to actually say undocumented uh, migrant workers. But I also realized that when I was a journalist, I had to keep pushing the boundary. You know, I had to just keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And I'm not sure because, you know, I don't really have that very many friends in the local media and I don't really talk to anyone uh, on a daily basis. So I don't quite understand the, the constraints and the restrictions that's placed on them by the editors in chief and you know, people who are the decision makers in uh, media organizations. But I do wish that you know, beyond the call of duty that they will actually uh, try to, to, to humanize stories, you know, to actually, instead of just saying this many people were arrested, but to actually give it more context. The fact that you know, seeking refuge is an inherent human right. So why are they being arrested? But we don't hear these things. And that is why largely when you go and speak to Malaysians, you know, they may not really understand issues and its complexities on a, on a, wholesome, on a wholesome basis. And it could also be because we are not giving them 
the entire information when we write our stories and news reports. It's the same when... I mean, I did wrong, but, you know. Yeah, I remember when Tashni was investigated uh, by the authorities for, for, for tweeting as well uh, on, on her coverage during the uh, running up, when they run up migrant workers and refugees at the uh, markets. You know, sometimes when I read reports, it, it became too dry. You know, sometimes I do ask a question about why, quite, why stories like that, they do not tell stories about how the migrant workers, whether they're documented or undocumented, what are we doing as journalists? Are we just going out there and report? But we are not telling, you know, what is important to the public. Again, the, the, the biggest question that I wanted to ask you is, you know, when we have so many human trafficking stories, whether there's baby trafficking and all that, you know, it, Malaysia has become a transit for a lot of human trafficking. I remember my former colleague wrote about uh, Ali Al uh, Hajri. Uh, she, she wrote a story about the uh, human trafficking in Klang uh, at a bird's nest uh, um, factory. And recently we've seen uh, immigration officers were arrested for, uh, for their involvement in human trafficking. So is neo-slavery a thing now in Malaysia? I'm not sure whether it's a thing now, but the thing is we have heard you know, over the last few years about immigration officers being uh, arrested for human trafficking, for actually, you know, if I remember rightly, selling bonded fishermen, you know, selling uh, migrants uh, to the bonded, uh, you know, to the fishing trade as bonded slavery, as, as bonded slaves, sorry. So the thing is that it's not that it is not happening, it's just been happening for far too long, I must say. I remember uh, two or three years ago when I was working on a story called Bo, uh, which is uh, the trafficking of young Rohingya girls who are then, uh, sold off as child rights to Rohingya men. One of the interviews I did was with a trafficker and he actually said that, um, you know, his colleagues in Bangladesh actually get, prepare new uh, passports, forge them, and then fly these kids into Malaysia via Kuala Lumpur International Airport. And then they are sold off for, I don't know, um, something like 18,000 or 16,000 Malaysian ringgit. So when that film came out, there was a lot of pressure on me because, you know, of course, uh, the police were, were not happy. The government, they, the government wasn't happy. But I remember distinctly that six weeks later, more than 100 immigration officers were transferred out of Kuala Lumpur International Airport. So what I'm trying to say is that there are some of us out there who still believe that, you know, digging up the truth is important. Putting that information out there is important. So instead of the kind of harassment that we see against media, whether it's Tashni or Stephen Gunn of Malaysia Kini. Instead of doing that, instead of harassing uh, media workers, instead of trying to silence us, it will be incredible if people, enforcement, authorities, the government can actually work together because we actually do a lot of dangerous work out there, don't we? Yeah, I mean, even your stories, uh, you know, going undercover, uh, covering stories on brothels and all that, you know, it's... It's a sacrifice, and you know, journalists can be of the help of the authorities. I know I don't understand why authorities are scared of journalists. Journalists can tell you, you know, the, speaking the truth. You know, they can be an ally when it comes to to this sort of um, uh, unfortunate things going around us. So, moving forward, you know, when how how are we going to move forward in in, in this sign of uh, covering of stories on migrants and refugees? in your opinion? 
we really have to be bold and courageous. We really need to humanize stories. So instead of saying so many migrant workers were actually uh, detained, you know, I actually am quite happy if you don't have photos of migrant women or refugee women and men or older people and children in chains. I mean, you can just say it. You can say that or you can write it saying that, you know, they were arrested and, you know, they were they were handcuffed or they were chained. We don't really have to see that. I mean, it's just so much humiliation. I mean, why are we humiliating these people, the most vulnerable, over and over and over? Not just dehumanizing them, but having photos of it splashed all over and then shared widely. And I think that, you know, every reporter has to understand that he or she has this responsibility because, you know, like I keep saying, you know, we are sharing information out there and we really need to get our facts right. We need to give it context. Giving context is not just giving eight paragraphs of the minister said this or the immigration officer said this. These people were arrested, but the why? How? When did this happen? You know, and why is it a violation? I mean, it's just so easy. Just do a little bit of Googling do a little bit of research. Maybe, like I said, it's difficult because of the restraints and the constraints, and I do understand that. But I also believe that if all of us come together and keep pushing the limits, keep, keep pushing our boundary, and keep saying to our editor that, no, we need to stand up for this group of people, things will change. I mean, you need to believe that things will change. If not, why are we doing this? Yeah, no, not many journalists uh, like you too. I think I would really love to see more and more uh, mahi coming up you know i'm also intrigued on how you know when you write stories you report stories uh, you have done films as well you know how how do you come to that part of making films you know into visual uh storytelling you know it's not easy because <laughs> even even getting some of my friends, uh, those who are, who are journalists, to come on, on, on my program to speak. They said, sorry, I'm, I'm just too shy to speak. I don't know how to speak. But I, I did tell them, if journalists don't tell their stories and, and people don't know who are those who have been working very hard to tell compelling stories of those without voices, you know, these are the people who should be celebrated, uh, like you. Because you give voice to a lot of people. So in your part, when you do your films, um, was it very difficult? Was it really hard for you when you first started? You know, writing a news report is different. Writing for a magazine like Time magazine is, is totally different. And uh, films, because when you use visuals, it's, oh my God, that much more difficult. Because, you know, people talk to you, right? They will talk to you and everything is okay. And then you go back and you put a camera in front of them and the person freezes like Oops. yes and then you're like oh, oh this is not gonna happen today so the whole thing is to is to win their trust is to earn their trust is for them to believe that you know that story is told with the right motivation it's not just about seeking limelight for yourself or just sensationalizing something it's really about you know, believing and having the confidence that telling that story will bring about some change. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not next year, but it will. You know, so it's incredibly difficult because visuals, when you put, when you ask people to start speaking into a camera, they freeze. But having said that, you know, when you read something or when you listen to an audio, yes, you are intrigued, 
But when you actually watch a film, because it's moving visuals, it's that much more intriguing. And it has got a wider reach. And I realized that, okay, if I want to tell stories of people, then I will put them on the screen. But Norman, when you mm. do things like that, especially when you work on very difficult stories like baby trafficking and migrant trafficking and, you know, young Rohingya girls who have been repeatedly raped, like one girl told me that she was raped by more than 60 traffickers. When you do those things, even though, yes, you know, you make sure that you can't see their faces and, but the thing is, they are human and they are there. And then you go back home and you ask yourself, what have I done? You know, have I done the right thing? You know, what is actually happening here? What if I can't see something happening? You know, then, you know, even though you tell yourself change comes, you know, it will come. But then you are like, no, it has to happen now. It has to happen to tomorrow. Because, you know, how do I justify the fact that these people have actually stood naked and told the entire world their story? And what has happened on the ground in terms of change? You don't really see it, do you? Mm -hmm. So sometimes it gets that much more difficult. I haven't really done a film after Bo because listening to these young kids was uh, very traumatizing. So I just want journalists and filmmakers to know that, you know, they don't have to be a Mahi because they are all better than Mahi. They can be better than Mahi, way better. I believe in that. Uh, people tell their stories differently just because you don't do a story on mil militancy or trafficking. It doesn't mean you're not a good storyteller or you're not a good filmmaker or a reporter. Each and every story is different. Each and every story is important. This, this you need to know. So, you know, I'm the person who had to think standing in, Mal in, uh, in uh, you know, um, the Sun newsroom, whether or not I wanted to be a journalist because my first story went into the rubbish bin right before my eyes. But having said that, I have also personally really suffered when it comes to mental health issues. And I would like to be open about it here because I um, was diagnosed last year with depression and, uh, and PTSD and also bipolar. So, you know, it's not easy because when you listen to people talking about their issues, you cannot not get affected. I know the first thing they teach you in journalism is that, look, the story is there, you are here, maintain the distance. It doesn't really work that way. You do get affected. And sometimes, maybe because you are emotional, you are crying and you have got all kinds of issues, maybe because you're human, that the story is important, that you're able to bring all of that element into the story that you're telling. And that's equally important as well. So again, to reporters out there, if you have any of these mental health issues, then there's nothing for you to be ashamed of. Yes, seek out, of course, but you know, it's understandable, you're human. And that's beautiful. You know, you know, when thanks for sharing on your, your personal stuff when it comes to mental health as well. I think most of us do face uh, a lot of challenges when it comes to mental health. This reminds me of an author, um, a researcher, the one who wrote uh, the Nanking, the Nanjing Massacre. You know, yeah. she, it really took a toll on her. But without her revelation, we would not know what happened. And, and stories like just like people, uh, journalists like you, you know, uncovering stories like that because it really has a lot of impact on a lot of journalists like all of us here because we're all human after all. You know, when stories like that, it is so emotional. It will impact on all of us. And you know, when it comes to what happened here in Malaysia to refugee fest, I was looking forward to it. And then when I was when I read the report saying that a lot of them had to pull out because they were scared, there were a lot of fear. 
what now? <laughs> what will happen next? The thing is that uh, the refugee festival is happening. It started yesterday, mm. but it's unfortunate that refugees uh, themselves, you know, artists from different refugee communities, felt that you know maybe it's not the right time for them to actually speak on panels or even perform. But we still have a few performances. But you know, people who have watched the refugee festival over the last four years will know that eighty to ninety percent of the performances are by the refugees themselves, and they sit in. Uh, they sit in uh, each and every panel. Sometimes the entire panel is uh, is a, is you know refugee speakers themselves and moderated by a refugee as well. Because you know I'm I'm uh, I, I wear many hats and I also run a non-profit organization called Beyond Borders. And I do believe that instead of me speaking for and on behalf of the refugees, it's important for them to be able to articulate their aspirations and. Um, that's really important for us to create platforms and opportunities and chances for them to be able to do that effectively. So that's one of the reasons why the Refugee Festival came about. So, yes, you know, sometimes you ask yourself, oh, my God, you know, after five years, is this a failure? You know, but the thing is, things take time to change on the ground. Now, I can I have a choice. I can sit at home and say, look at these Malaysians. They're really cribbing and complaining and there's so much hate speech and it's so toxic and and I can go on and on like this and have conversations like this over tea and coffee and dinner and whatever. Or I can say, okay, listen, Mahi, you still have the platform and you can do something using it. And that is exactly what we are doing. Both Saleh, you know, the co-director and myself, Saleh Sepas, the Afghan theater director and myself, we are uh, co-directing the festival this year. So we decided that the festival itself is important. The festival itself is a platform that can actually talk about the fact that refugees had to pull out and that statement is equally important because then we are telling the authorities that things are really going badly on the ground so please you know do send a strong message to malaysians saying that yes that you have a government policy but the bullying the hate speech the, the xenophobia is just not on yeah this this is um, you know sometimes when we complain or we pointed out some of the horrible comments. I think the next thing what we all can do as as journalists is to start educating the public and in humanizing the images of migrant workers and refugees. You know, even today, um, I was quite surprised that Bernama came out with a story about the migrant workers in PJ Market was wondering how are they going to survive after this. It is very, uh, I wouldn't say very elaborate. It was just very simple how they make money and things like that. It was very descriptive, very simple story, but I think it is good. You know, how, what would you say, you know, to sum up uh, our, our discussion today? You know, what would you say to a lot of um, journalists out there when, it covers, when you cover on stories on migrant workers as well as refugees? You know, how do you, what would you say to them? You know, the thing is, uh, media has changed a lot. You know this, right? It has really changed from it's a very traditional form to something that's uh, that you know that is uh, kind of much more uh, complex. But yes, simple. It's complex. It's simple. It do, it's not traditional. Uh, it allows people to kind of come up with stories and put their stories out there. So everything has changed, and it has also been incredible because. I know that there are many reporters out there who are also on my Facebook. So if you really feel that you cannot tell your stories, you cannot use, you know, you cannot tell your stories and, and 
because you know that your editor isn't going to allow it yeah. to be published, then brilliant. Then fine, you know, look for other avenues because you have your Facebook, you have your Instagram, you have your Twitter, and what have you not? You have blogs and whatever else. So use those platforms to tell the story, right? If you have to write eight paragraphs about this many people were arrested at whatever time and whatever place, and now they are in whichever immigration detention center, and this is what the immigration DG or director, whoever it is, said, and then, you know, as a follow-up, you also have a particular minister saying this. So that's your story. That's the only thing that the media is going to, that your newspaper is going to allow you to publish. Fine. Then find other avenues. But do you want to find the other avenues? Do you really believe that your stories are important? Do you really believe that that story that you're going to write on your personal space that can be shared by many, many thousand people, whether you believe or not, that's important. And that story needs to be told. Now, this is important. If a person doesn't believe in it, it's not going to happen. So I urge everyone to first understand that they have, that they are powerful, that because they can tell stories, powerful stories that can change people's lives, that can bring about new policies that is going to be positive towards someone's um, progression, someone's life. And, you know, you have an opportunity to play this role. You have an opportunity to facilitate this change, to facilitate new conversations and narratives. So please, please use that. Use that. Thank you so much, Mahi. And that's it. And this is a very good way to, to end today's um, uh, special episode on Malaysian women in journalism. And thank you so much for sharing your story, Mahi. And I know it's, it's very, uh, it's raining heavily outside. And Listen to the full podcast of Bichara Mingo Ini on Spotify, Anchor, and Google Podcasts. Follow me on Twitter at I'm Go for the latest updates on current affairs and stories.